Father, thank you for this day of rest and worship and the privilege of coming to your house with your people to seek your face and study your word. Thank you for the rich heritage from our forefathers. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you have blessed us. And we pray as we consider what they said based on your holy scriptures about salvation, how they focused on it, that you would be pleased to write the truth of salvation and all its glory on our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now what I want to do this morning is to give you an overview of salvation, which is the content and development of the London Confession of Faith in chapters 7 through 18. Now in these chapters, our Baptist forefathers followed very closely the structure and content of the Westminster Assembly. And in fact, what those Reformed evangelical gospel-believing Christians of the 17th century set forth in those documents that have been handed down to us as a heritage is really the mature fruit of the religious revival known as the Reformation. Through that religious revival, there was widespread conversion and outpouring of the Holy Spirit and great gospel light. And as God's people came out of the darkness of medieval bondage to the glory of gospel light, they saw and appreciated afresh the wonder of God's great work of salvation promised, accomplished, and applied. And they set down the fruit of those insights in the confessions of faith. It's the mature insight and blessing and enlightening of 150 years of that gospel revival and its impact upon the Church of Christ. And so we have as our heritage the blessing of those insights. And it, it seems appropriate to go through the big picture in this class. In the big picture, they set forth the idea of God's great work of salvation in chapters 7 through 18. And first of all, they talk about the promise of salvation what they refer to as God's covenant. And the promise of salvation is set out in chapter 7. Then they talk about the accomplishment of salvation. And our confession of faith combines the Westminster Confession and the First London Confession in chapter 8 when it sets forth the person and work of Christ the Redeemer who accomplishes salvation. And then... The great insight of the Reformation, the application of salvation and the Christian life and what the Christian life really involves is set out in detail in chapters 9 through 18. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 10 of the 32 chapters, almost an entire third of our confession of faith focuses on the Christian life, the blessings and graces 
of the Christian life. And that's the way they organize it. It's interesting that the foundation or framework of the Christian life is set forth in chapter 9. And the framework of the Christian life is the state of grace. And human nature in its fourfold state, the state of innocence, the state of sin, the state of grace, the state of glory, is the content of chapter 9. And the blessings and graces that God bestows in the Christian life are all experienced in this state of grace. So they set the framework of the Christian life and of the blessings and graces of salvation in chapter 9 when they talk about what they call free will that accounts for human nature in its fourfold state, from the state of innocence to the state of sin to the state of grace and the state of glory. Then they talk about the state of grace and the Christian life in the state of grace in chapters 10 through 18. And their organizing principle is that they first, what's you know what, you ever heard the Latin term ordo salutis? Anybody ever hear ordo salutis? You hear that before? Nobody ever heard about ordo salutis? Why, you never been to seminary? You really never heard ordo salutis? Well, ordo salutis, it means literally the order of salvation. And, and it's something that people talk about, whether there's a temporal order, which blessings and graces come first, or a logical order, or a causal order. For example, which is the cause of the other? Is regeneration the cause of faith, or is faith the cause of regeneration? Regeneration is the cause of faith. What is the instrument of justification? It is faith. So then faith, logically, because it's the means of justification, precedes justification, because we're justified by means of faith. So you have regeneration, faith, justification. All aspects of conversion. And yet there is a causal order between them. Regeneration causes faith. And faith is the means that gives rise to justification because we're justified by means of faith. So you have regeneration, faith, justification. Now, is that the way that the confession presents the blessings and graces of the Christian life? The answer is no. No? No. Well, if that's not their organizing principle, what, pray tell, is the organizing principle by which the Westminster Assembly and the Baptists, our Baptist forefathers follow them, what is the organizing principle by which the, the, the assemblies and the confessions presented the blessings and graces of the Christian life. If they didn't use strictly the causal or logical or order of the ordo salutis, repentance, faith, justification, what exactly uh, regeneration? Boy, did you hear what I just said? Imagine if somebody actually listened to that. Man's a heretic! Regeneration, faith. I didn't mean repentance, faith, justification. I meant regeneration, Faith, justification. It's good I listen to myself, huh? Anyway. I think it's funny, huh? 
What, you never had a slip of the tongue? Here, <laughs> you want to, you want to, no, 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 don't. It's not worth, no, anyway. Don't get me started on that. Yeah, I mean, there's no way I can blame him for my slip of the tongue, right? But we'll see if we can find a way to do it. Regeneration, faith, justification. That's not my point. My point is that is not the order that the confession uses. Oh, well, what order do they use? Well, look at this. The application of salvation has a moral or a foundation or spiritual framework. It takes place in the context of the state of grace and human nature in its fourfold state. Look what they have first. Effectual calling. Now that's another terminology for regeneration. Justification, adoption, sanctification. Chapter 10, effectual calling. Chapter 11, justification. 12, adoption. 13, sanctification. And then 14, faith. 15, repentance. 16, good works. 17, perseverance. 18, assurance. What's the organizing principle? How come it has justification and sanctification before it has faith? Well, my understanding is the, of the organizing principle is simply this. First, they enumerate the blessings of the Christian life that are attributed in Scripture to God. It is God that calls effectually or regenerates. It is God that justifies. It is God that adopts. And it is God that sanctifies. And then they enumerate the graces of the Christian life. It is the Christian that repents. It's the Christian that believes. It's the Christian that perseveres. It's the Christian that has assurance. Those are graces of the Christian life. So first, they enumerate the blessings that God bestows. And these graces are also blessings that God bestows, but these graces are graces that Christians exercise in the Christian life. And they are faith and repentance and perseverance and assurance. That's the organizing principle. Now, that to me is a very interesting organizing principle. It's not, it follows the ordo salutis in the fact that regeneration precedes justification. But it doesn't exactly use what typically has been addressed as the ordo salutis. Rather, it collects together the blessings that God bestows and then the, the blessings he bestows as graces that Christians exercise. So you have the blessings of the Christian life in uh, chapters 10 to 13, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, and then the graces of the Christian life, faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, and assurance in chapters 14 through 18. So you have the promise of salvation, chapter 7, God's covenant. The accomplishment of salvation, chapter 8, 
Christ's person and work. The application of salvation, the Christian life, the feature of the Westminster and London Confessions, 10 of the 32 chapters, chapters 9 to 18, the moral foundation or framework, the state of grace, the blessings of the Christian life, calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, and the graces of the Christian life, faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, and assurance. Now, that's an overview of how the confessions, Westminster and London, present the idea of salvation. Salvation promised, salvation accomplished, salvation applied. And they feature the Christian life. Okay, before we move on, Questions or comments on that, because that is really crucial to put our, our confession of faith and its content into perspective. If you want to study it or read it or appreciate it, to see that framework, I, what I'm showing you this morning is I'm showing you the forest. You want to climb these trees? Good, climb them. Just don't get lost as to where they are, because that's the forest of the doctrine of salvation as confessed in the things most surely believed among us. Yeah, questions about that or comments on it before we move on. No? Yes, Ron. Well, I'm not exactly, I mean, I can't give you a dogmatic answer to that. But, I, I don't know. I could give you my thought. I mean, it is rather striking, isn't it? That they put the issue of free will there. I mean, when I deal with free will and systematic theology, I don't deal with it in the doctrine of salvation. I deal with it in the doctrine of man. But you can understand why, at least I think I understand why they put it here. Because the blessings and graces of the Christian life, effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, faith, repentance, good works, perseverance, assurance, they all take place in the state of grace. So they're laying the foundation for expounding the blessings and graces of the Christian life that those in the state of grace experience. So, because they're going to talk about the experiences of the Christian life in the state of grace, they set the foundation by giving you the overview of human nature in these fourfold states. They put the state of grace into perspective. There is the state of innocence, the state of sin, the state of grace, the state of glory. So that lays a foundation for expounding the Christian life, the blessings of the state of grace. Like, for example, you have chapter 7, which is the promise of salvation. Chapter 8, the accomplishment of salvation. Now, chapter 9, then they call it free will. But observe, 
talks about the definition of free will, which explains how human nature can be in the state of innocence, the state of sin, the state of grace, and the state of glory in chapter, in paragraph one. Paragraph two, man in his state of innocency. Paragraph three, man by his fall into the state of sin. Then paragraph four is what they're gonna talk about. They're gonna talk about the blessings and the graces that Christians experience in the Christian life in the state of grace. So in paragraph four of chapter nine, they define the state of grace. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin. And by his grace alone, enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good, yet, so as by reason of his remaining corruption, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. And then finally, the state of glory. The will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory. So you have the state of innocence, the state of sin, the state of grace, the state of glory, and that, as I understand it, sets a foundation for then expounding the state of grace, the blessings and graces of the Christian life that are experienced by those in the state of grace. But that's my understanding of why they put it there. Because everything that they're going to address in chapters 10 through 18 relates to the state of grace and the blessings and graces of the Christian life in that state of grace. So they want to set the foundation first and give you the framework so you have an understanding of the idea of the spiritual moral state of grace. That, that's the best I can do with it. That answer your question? I think that's why I think they put it there. I mean, I could be wrong. Um, I've never actually consulted with them, or I'm not quite that old. I've never actually studied the history of the confession and the Westminster Assembly to see if they debated where they would put the doctrine of free will and why. I don't know. They, they might have actually debated that, and they might have told people why they did it. If so, I've never studied that. I really can't be dogmatic about it. But from a, from a theological, practical point of view, that, that's why I think it's there. That's, that's how I think it fits there. At least that's the way I outline it. But I can't dogmatically assert that that's what they were thinking. Okay. Yes, Bruce. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did say that. Yep. It's all God. And it's all grace from beginning to end. That's right. We persevere because he enables us to persevere. If it was left to us, we wouldn't. We have assurance because he gives us hope. He. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and do them. 
I will take out the stony heart out of your flesh. I will put my fear in their heart so they will not depart from me, says the Lord. And I will never turn away from following after them to do them good. I mean, that's why we persevere. Because God made those promises and keeps them in the new covenant. And you want to know, where, where was I quoting from? Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 32 is where those passages come from. Okay? Yeah, that's even. That, did you hear what he, Tim just said? He said, then he rewards us for it. Yeah, that's even more amazing, isn't it? What grace, what mercy to give us blessing and reward for, for doing the things that he produces in us. So it's even more amazing. How gracious is that? He produces it. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God afore prepared that you would walk in them. Right. That's grace and mercy. All right, any other questions or comments? So that's the, as I understand, that's a big picture of the doctrine of salvation. Now, God willing, in the next several weeks, months, we're going to be opening up this wonderful doctrine, starting with the promise of salvation, God's covenant, the accomplishment of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and then the application of salvation, the, the framework of the Christian life, which is the state of grace, and where the state of grace fits in the big picture, and then the blessings and graces that God bestows on the, in the Christian life to all those who are in the state of grace, which is oh, all these things, uh, calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, those blessings that God bestows, and the graces that God works in us, and that we exercise faith, repentance, assurance, perseverance, all those things. Okay? And, of course, good works. All those things that we do, that God works in us. Okay. So where do we go the rest of this morning? Well, it's interesting because in different years, I've gone to different places, depending on who knows what. I can't remember all the reasons that I then went in different directions. One of the things I want to look at this morning, what I have in my notes to do this morning. I'll tell you what I have in my notes. Let me ask you a question. What I have in my notes to do is to go through the essence of these blessings that God bestows. What exactly does the confession mean? Do the confessions mean when they talk about calling, justification, sanctification and adoption. What are they talking about? So that's what I have in my notes to do and that's where I was going to go. But maybe, just maybe, there, were, there are other aspects of this doctrine of salvation that you would like me to focus on. So if there are, say on now. And maybe, against my better judgment, Paul, I'll try to do it off the top of my head. Are there any of these aspects? Would you prefer to focus on the promise, accomplishment, or some other aspect? Because if not, 
then what I've got in my notes to do is to go through these four blessings of the Christian life and to go through exactly what the confession says about them. Okay, well, you better speak up now or I'm going to turn you to chapter 10, paragraph 1. Let's look at what effectual calling is. All right, so now let's take a look at what these blessings are. Do you understand what God does for you in the Christian life in the state of grace? Do you understand what he's done for you? We should. Why should we understand it? So we can appreciate the greatness of his love and thank and praise and worship him for his grace that he bestows upon us, grace that took us out of darkness, grace that never lets us go. Grace that blesses us with calling, justification, adoption, and sanctification. All works of God that he does in the application of redemption in the Christian life. First of all, the foundation. What has been called regeneration by some, what they refer to as effectual calling. In chapter 10, paragraph 1, and this is in the back, these, these are defined on page 676 of the back of the uh, Trinity hymnal, uh, the Baptist version, effectual calling on 676, justification on 676, and then adoption and sanctification on the other side of the page on 677. So, effectual calling first. Now the scripture, and it's interesting that the canons of Dorrit use the word regeneration, and the confessions, so, so the Dutch standards use regeneration, and the English Puritan standards, the Westminster and London confessions, use effectual calling. Scripture uses both of these graphic descriptions of the radical, moral transformation with which the Christian life begins. Begins with a radical, moral transformation of the whole soul by God's sovereign power and grace through the Holy Spirit. There is a radical moral renewal, which the Dutch standards call regeneration, which the English Puritan standards call effectual calling, which the Bible refers to as both. So what do they say about this? Those whom God has or hath Predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. How does he do that? By his word and spirit. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. So there's the idea of effectual calling. It is a radical, powerful, moral renewal by which God brings dead sinners to spiritual life and brings them out of the state of sin and into the state of grace. And he does that by his word in the gospel and by his Holy Spirit. So, the word of God in the gospel tells the story of Jesus, paints the picture of Jesus, 
And the Holy Spirit gives eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive. The Holy Spirit takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh in conjunction with the gospel. So the gospel comes in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. That is a work of God. The transition from the state of sin to the state of grace is all of God and all of grace. It is a radical, permanent, moral renewal of the whole soul by the word and spirit of God. As I said, the Canons of Dort call that regeneration. Our confessions, Westminster and London, call it, the English Puritan confessions call it effectual calling. The Bible calls it both. All right. And how does he do that? Look what he does. Enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Taking away the heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. Renewing their wills and by his almighty power determining them to that which is good. See the connection with chapter 9? Takes them out of the state of sin and into the state of grace. That's why I think what they say in chapter 9 is foundational to understanding regeneration or effectual calling. Because they say that the will of man in the state of sin is determined or characteristically morally fixed to evil. And the will of man in the state of grace is determined or characteristically fixed morally to good. That's what they said in chapter 9. How does that transformation take place? Through effectual calling, moral renewal of the Holy Spirit, what, what, it, what we call regeneration or effectual calling. This is what God does. This is how sinners go from the state of sin to the state of grace. It's through this work of God transforming them and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet, so as they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. It's a moral transformation of the whole soul and every faculty of the soul. The mind enlightened, the heart of stone removed, the will renewed and determined to that which is good, the whole person drawn effectually to Christ, and yet, not as a puppet forced against their will, but they come most freely, being made willing by His grace. That's effectual calling. That's how sinners go from the state of sin to the state of grace. You see that, Ron? You see that what, what probably the connection with chapter, chapter 9 and how they actually use the same kind of terminology that they used in chapter 9? That makes sense? So I think that's why chapter 9 is there, because it lays the foundation upon which they can then, in this way, build the doctrine of, of effectual calling. All right, then next comes justification. So effectual calling is a, a radical, permanent, moral renewal of the whole soul by which God, by his Holy Spirit, through his gospel word, takes sinners out of the state of sin and brings them into the state of grace. Does that make sense? That's the first blessing. That's the foundational blessing. 
of the Christian life. Second, in chapter 11, paragraph 1, they define justification. And notice how it's put. Because it says in Romans 8, in the, what's called the golden chain, whom he predestined, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. So in the confession of faith, they actually quote that. And they say, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. Look, it comes right out of Romans 8.30. Whom he predestined, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Not by infusing righteousness into them. So justification is not a moral blessing. Justification is a legal blessing. It is a judicial pronouncement. It is a vindication judicially and legally of God the judge. It doesn't take place in the operating room. God's not infusing righteousness into the human soul in justification. That's confusing calling or regeneration with justification. Justification is not a moral change of the soul. Justification is a legal, judicial act of God the judge. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. It's a legal act and blessing of God the judge in God's courtroom by which God the righteous judge pardons the sins of those who believe and accounts and accepts them as righteous. What's the ground of it? Not for anything wrought in them or done by them. Well, what is the ground of it? But for Christ's sake alone, the ground of this legal act of God is Christ and Christ alone. What's the method? Not by imputing faith itself the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. So it's not that God said, well, you know, they can't keep the law, so I'm going to lower my requirement. And this is called, I'm not going to give you the Latin, I'm going to give you the English. This is the doctrine of the new law. The new law. And the, doc, the false doctrine, or heresy of the new law, is that, well, God realized that men couldn't keep the Ten Commandments, so he lowered the standard to something they could do. And then they're right with God on the grounds of this new law, this lowered standard that they can do and do. So no, you can't perfectly keep the law of God, but you can believe. And so God has lowered his standard. And you're justified on the grounds of your obedience, your faith, or your evangelical righteousness, or your covenant keeping, your fidelity, your faithfulness, whatever they want to say that new standard is. 
Our confession says, uh-uh. There is no new law by which we're justified on the grounds of our faith or our gospel obedience or our faithfulness as our righteousness. But then what is the method? But by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness by faith. By means of faith, what God imputes is the obedience of Christ. For as by the disobedience of the one, the many were made sinners, even so by the obedience of the one shall the many be made righteous. What God imputes is not our faith, and it's not our, our fidelity or our evangelical good works. What he imputes is the perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ in his life and death. By the obedience of the one shall the many be made righteous. He credits or imputes Christ's virtue to us. By means of faith. Which faith? They have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ to believe. Philippians 1.29 So that's justification. So you have the moral blessing. The transformation of the whole soul by the Holy Spirit. The legal blessing. The pardoning of sin. The clearing of the record. The vindication of believers on the ground of Christ's righteousness because of grace alone. On the ground of Christ alone. Received by means of faith alone. The legal blessing of justification. And then you have adoption. So it's like in adoption, the believer is in court, but now it's not a criminal courtroom. It's the family court. It's a different courtroom. And what happens in family court? All those that are justified, God vouchsafed, that is promised, in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. What a glorious blessing. That God not only acts as a judge, not only in the courtroom, but I, I refer to this as God's living room. So he takes us into his family. He makes us his children. He doesn't just clear our records in his courtroom. He doesn't just transform us morally and change our hearts in his operating room. 
So you have the operating room of effectual calling or regeneration where he morally renews us. You have the courtroom of justification where he clears our records and accredits us as righteous on the ground of Christ's virtue. Then you have the living room where he actually takes us into his family and adopts us as his children and treats us as a father throughout our whole life and gives us the inheritance of glory. So you have the blessing of regeneration or effectual calling, the blessing of justification, the blessing of adoption, and finally, the blessing of sanctification in chapter 13. They who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified. So, what's the organizing principle for this? You'd say, well, if this is ongoing moral renewal, why didn't they just put chapter 13 right after chapter 10 and talk about the definitive or foundational moral renewal associated with conversion and then the ongoing moral renewal of the Christian life. And so they could have had uh, effectual calling, sanctification, and then justification and adoption. Could they have organized it that way? What do you think? Yeah, sure they could have. They could have said, the moral blessing of the operating room, the legal blessing of the courtroom, effectual calling, justification, Right? And then the experiential blessing of the living room. So why not put all the moral blessing together? Well, I can't, again, I didn't ask them, hey guys, why'd you do it this way? But I'll tell you what I think. The primary focus of effectual calling, justification, and adoption. These blessings all take place at the beginning of the Christian life of conversion. So first, they present the blessings associated primarily with conversion and the beginning of the Christian life, which are the moral blessing of effectual calling, the legal blessing of justification, and the experiential blessing of adoption. And then, they present the moral blessing associated with the ongoing continuation of the Christian life throughout the Christian life, which is sanctification. So they're fe featuring the blessings of conversion and then the blessings of the ongoing, the blessing of the ongoing Christian life, the continual developing moral blessing of sanctification. That's what I think their organizing principle is. Now, they didn't tell me that, but that's what I think. So, you have conversion and its blessings first. The operating room, effectual calling, regeneration, moral renewal. The courtroom, justification, cleared record. Vindication, made righteous, pardoned, forgiven, on the ground of Christ's virtue imputed, received by means of faith alone. The living room, adoption, all the blessings associated primarily with conversion. And then they talk about the moral blessing associated with the ongoing moral renewal of the Christian life.
So chapter 13 builds on chapter 10. The moral blessing of progressive sanctification is built upon and grows out of the moral blessing of regeneration. Those who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, chapter 10, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, chapter 10, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified. So that there's a sense in which there's a connection between the moral renewal of chapter 10 and the farther ongoing moral renewal of progressive sanctification in the Christian life. What begins in regeneration continues in progressive sanctification. They are farther sanctified. They already were foundationally sanctified in their effectual calling, and now they are farther sanctified in the blessing of sanctification in the Christian life. That's how I understand the development of thought and the connection. And how are they farther sanctified? Really and personally, through the same virtue, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. And what does this involve? The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts of it are more and more weakened and mortified and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to, pra to the practice of all true holiness without which no man will see the Lord. So this progressive sanctification, the development of gospel holiness, the ongoing progressive mortification of remaining sin throughout the Christian life by the word of God and the spirit of God and the power of God and the grace of God. So those are the blessings of the Christian life that they feature in chapters 10 to 13. Three of them primarily connected with conversion. The final one connected with the ongoing experience of the Christian life in the state of grace. So that's what I thought I'd have time to cover this morning. And look, what do you know? 20 after 10. <laughs>